everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we're going to be talking about the tragic case of Shane Sutherland, who was killed in what I will describe, uh, at least at the outset, as a George Floyd type incident in Stockton, California. We have on our show um, the mother of Shane Sutherland, Karen Sutherland, and we also have the family's attorney, uh, James D. Simone, who is a civil rights trial lawyer uh, based in Southern California. So welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And I think uh, for this, uh, for starters, um, why don't you describe uh, kind of what happened, what led up uh, to uh, Shane ending up in the confrontation uh, with the police and then his untimely uh, death? Do you want to start to explain, Karen? Sure. Um, so my son, uh, Shane, went to an AMPM store in Stockton, California, Um, he was inside the store and he was obviously in some mental distress. He, uh, asked to call 911. And, um, so he made the phone call and he asked for a taxi. Um, so obviously he was, you know, um, I don't, I don't know if he meant to call 411. I'm, I mean, I don't know. Anyway, um, the police show up. And I don't know how much in detail you want me to go on this, but the police show up um, after the 911 operator had told him, you know, that they don't provide taxis. The police showed up and Shane, they asked Shane to go outside and put his hands up. So he complied um, and went outside and sat on the curb like they asked him to. and they were questioning him. He was answering their questions, uh, telling him, you know, what he did for work. Uh, and I, from what I've seen, I haven't watched the full um, body cam video. Just, I just can't handle it. Uh, but because of what I was told by the police is that Shane got up and tried to run. I needed to see that for myself because that's, I just couldn't see him trying to run from the police. He didn't do anything wrong. So uh, I, I did watch it up into the part where he, he stands up really quick. And in my opinion, as his mother, because I've known him his whole life, 
um, something spooked him. Um, you know, people tell me that they hear things in the background, maybe the sign behind him or something. Um, I I'm not sure, but it looks like he stood up really fast just because something spooked him and, and he kind of turned around and then that's when the police tackled him down to the concrete. Yeah, maybe since I saw the video, I can take it from there. Um, you know, when 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 Shane stood up, he he did move towards the officers, and then immediately turned and apologized and said he was sorry, and, and essentially ran into the officers' arms. So the allegation that he was running away from them, um, he basically ran towards the officers and essentially gave them up. I, I agree with Karen. I, I think he had a, a moment of perhaps anxiety where he panicked a little bit and, but he immediately knew that it wasn't the right thing to do. And these officers took him down to the ground pretty much without incident, pretty, pretty abruptly, got his hands behind his back and handcuffed him. So he's handcuffed, lied prone on the ground without resistance and they effectively handcuff him. Now at this moment, police officers know that he's in a very vulnerable position. When someone's face down on the ground, even without pressure, it can be very difficult to breathe the way when your hands are pulled behind your back and handcuffed, the pressure it exerts on your diaphragm as you're face down. But instead of, as police are taught to do, sitting him up, turning him on his side, if they need, feel that they need to have some continued control when he's handcuffed, they double down. They have him down on the ground. They start to press a baton their forearms and their body weight into Shane's back. And even though the one body cam we have only shows for a brief instant, we, instance, we could see the forearm of the officer across the back of Shane's neck. That is a dangerous position. And that is what is called positional restraint, positional asphyxiation, which we have known for decades, kills people. And so the officers violated their protocols, violated their training, and as we've uh, determined by an independent autopsy, resulted in, in Shane's death through what's called positional or restraint asphyxiation because he couldn't breathe. And I think, you know, the question that I have that stands out when I hear this whole thing is that even, let, let's assume that he was going to flee. Um, because, you know, who knows, right? Um, it, it just seems to me that we should know enough about restraints and, and problems breathing by now, especially after George Floyd. And, and really, as I've heard you point out before, we've known about this for a long time. This is certainly not the first person who has died from lack of uh, oxygen. Um, it, it just doesn't seem like, um, you know, his initial threat to run uh, justifies pinning him, holding him down to the point where he can't breathe. Well, that's right. He posed no threat to anyone. They, they patted him down. He's in shorts, a T-shirt. He's unarmed. They know he's unarmed. Uh, he hadn't hurt anyone. He wasn't committing any crime that most he was committing, you know, there was some disturbance within the AMPM, but, um, you know, whether that was criminal or not, but right, what threat does he pose to uh, the officers of the community if he gets away from them in this instance? But he had no chance to get away. 
So it this is also compounded by the fact that you should listen and respond to the person that you're apprehending. What was Shane Sutherland saying when he was on the ground? You're choking me. I can't breathe. I beg you, please let me breathe. Please let me live. Until finally, he said, I, I'm already dead and, and, and cursed. And then shortly thereafter, passed away. So this is someone that you could see is struggling to breathe. And as just like in the George Floyd situation, yes, his head is moving as he's gasping for breath, but gasping for breath is not resistance. It's not threatening. He is literally struggling to bring breath into his lungs and these officers keep pressing down until one of them sees it and says, hey, wait a minute, he's turning colors. You should let off him a little bit. So why don't we give credence and listen to someone who is begging for their lives? Why don't police officers pick up on those cues consistent with these training? I mean, not only are you literally suffocating the last breath out of this man, he's telling you that's what you're doing. Why not let up? Why not get up? There's no reason for it. And that's why we contend that this is a homicide and that this is a civil rights violation and a, and a wrongful death. And I'll get into that in a second. But um, at, at this point, was he ever lawfully detained? I mean, was he free to leave or was he actually detained at some point? That's a good question. I mean, the, the legal definition of detention is a, there's a little bit of a gray area there, but certainly they did direct him to go outside and sit down. So one could infer from what they said that he was not free to leave. However, they're just asking him questions. He's answering the questions. They never tell him you're not free to leave. So, um, it, you know, the, the people are, you, if a police officer comes up to you and asks you a question and there's no reason for them to detain you, you're within your rights to walk away from that police officer and not answer the question. So, you know, the, arguably when Shane got up and tried to, um, you know, move away from the officers, if in fact that's what he was doing, although honestly, he just really went right into their arms. Um, uh, then, then he was within his rights to do so because they hadn't given him any commands not to. And then the other thing that I find uh, interesting, and I've looked into quite a few of these cases, unfortunately, um, you know, uh, police don't seem to be trained uh, on air passage because uh, one of the things that we saw in Eric Garner, we saw it in George Floyd, uh, we saw it in, uh, uh, Karen, I know you know Marissa Barrera, her brother's case, um, you know, is this, this notion that, hey, if you can talk, you can breathe, which is completely false in a lot of ways. Because just because you can breathe out doesn't mean you can breathe back in uh, if you're being compressed. Uh, the other issue, of course, is that just because you can talk doesn't mean you can breathe enough to sustain your life, uh, which they don't seem to understand that. So, uh, I mean, is this a training thing or, or, or what, what do you sense here? Well, I, I think it is a... a failure in training because, again, the, the notion of positional asphyxiation has been um, 
there's studies on this and police agencies study this and it's it's been for decades i mean i i've, I've been a civil rights lawyer in california since 1985 and in, in certainly in the early 90s we had cases which were, were similar and and the, and the conduct has continued so i i do think it's a lack of training i also think it's the culture it's the culture of police officers to so value their lives over anybody else's that they are willing to put someone else's life at risk just so that they don't have a theoretical issue with someone, i.e. if someone's handcuffed, they really can't do a lot, right? They're, on, they're handcuffed. Where are they going to go? How far are they going to get if they're running, right? But yet, okay, are they going to get sort of mocked in the locker room if they let some guy run away from them in handcuffs? Or is their ego like so going to be so bruised if that happens? So they will go so far because of the police culture to risk killing someone in order not to um, have a risk that somehow uh, they didn't do something something properly. And they should just have it, it, it violates the first tenet of being a police officer, which is to have a respect and reverence for life. The, the, the protocol, the training's there, but what is emphasized, and I've heard police officer after police officer say, they value their lives over the lives of the public that they are sworn to protect. And that is very disturbing. Well, and it also seems like a lot of these cases, you know, even if the people run away, they're not really a threat to anyone other than maybe themselves. Um, and so there needs to be uh, some sort of prioritization. I know, you know, uh, for the most part, they've now um, outlawed, you know, shooting a fleeing suspect who's not otherwise a danger. But, you know, you don't have to shoot them as we, we've learned to do a lot of harm. No, that, that, that's true. And, um, you know, in this instance, I mean, look at what Shane was saying when he initially was taken down. He said, okay, I'm not going to move. They're telling him, relax, relax. I'm relaxed. Okay. So, it, it, you know, this isn't even someone who's fighting with them. You know, it, it, it's, it's not, I mean, there may be an instance in terms of a life or death circumstance that an officer can employ restraint to the neck or, you know, is what you know, was used to be called a chokehold or restraint of, you know, an arm bar. But that is only when the officer's life is literally threatened by the person they're confronting. You know, I saw this, I've been getting into the series Bosch. <laughs> and I saw that on Bosch last night. That's a television show. It literally was someone who was, it was either him or the police officer in a fight to the death. And we saw the chokehold. Oh, and it, 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 you know, and that's a different circumstance. Shane Sutherland was inside an AMPM store and, and was, you know, trying to get home. Uh, he was fully employed, had a family, has children. His life is valued. And it's, I mean, the devastating loss to this family that you can see over and over again as they celebrate the different milestones in his life. There's no coming back from that. So, um, yes we should be placing the priority of life over catching someone in the instance where they are, where it is not a situation where it's a matter of life and death, i.e. that person is not posing a threat to the officers or anybody else. And Karen, you know, uh, James 
brought this up, but uh, I, you know, can you kind of introduce us a little bit to Shane? I mean, what was he like? What was his life like? Um, what was it like having him in your life? So Shane, um, even from a kid, he was a, he was a very caring person. Um, and anybody that knew him can tell you that. Uh, he truly did care about people. Uh, he didn't hurt people. He was not violent. Um, he, he was very big into family and, um, he just, you know, he's a hard worker, very hard worker when, um, he worked for the union, uh, the glazers and glass workers union, local 169 in the Bay area. Um, when COVID hit and they got laid off, uh, he went to Alaska. My nephew is a commercial fisherman in Alaska. And so he went over there and he fished and, um, he did that for a little bit and he loved it. Like it wasn't even a job and that's a lot of work. It's hard work. Many hours a day you're out there, you know, fishing. And, um, so he loved it, but he knew he needed to come back because he had his children. So, um, he, uh, he came back after a couple months when they started hiring back, you know, from, from the COVID layoff. So he came back and, uh, went back to work. Um, and, you know, his, his character, like he, he was just very funny. Um, I have plenty of videos of him and him and I laughing and, uh, we just understood each other, you know, a lot. And, um, I could start laughing at something and, and he knew what I was, <laughs> I didn't have to say it. I didn't even have to say what it was. And he would just laugh. Uh, we had an awesome relationship, um, you know, uh, him growing up again, you know, typical kid things or whatever. Um, but as far as, you know, what I could say about him, everybody loved Shane. Had those cops met Shane on a different day and they weren't in uniform and whatever, they would have loved Shane. He was just a good person. He was friendly to everybody. And, um, and, and he's truly missed. Like there, there's nobody else like him. He was very unique and uh, he's, he's very missed. Everybody misses him. And I feel like that's really important for people to kind of understand because, you know, you read about these cases all the time and, and you don't really get a sense for the people because, you know, their life unfortunately boils down to this final, uh, you know, uh, exchange between the person and the, and the police and you know you're kind of left to pick up those pieces uh, so uh, James where does this case stand and um, what's happening in terms of a formal investigation but also in terms of the lawsuit well we have, of course have filed the federal civil rights lawsuit we have uh, recently served it uh, when you're in federal court, there's a, a early meeting of counsel and we'll be requesting all documents, try to get into these officers' uh, history in terms of seeing whether they have a pattern of the use of excessive force or the allegations uh, of that use of force. And we'll be taking uh, depositions uh, of those officers and others. Um, you know, in terms of the informal investigation, I mean, we have asked 
the we have provided the second autopsy report to the district attorney's office. We have asked them to um, both. Um, I, I mean, they said it was under investigation. In fact, the state of California said we're not investigating because right now the district attorney's investigating. So we are not privy to what constitutes their investigation. I'd say one thing that is a real shortcoming when you have individuals here like Karen Sutherland, who is really the, a victim of police excessive force in that they killed her son, district attorneys don't really keep in touch with those victims' families. You know, it, it's not something where, okay, we're going to keep you apprised of what we're doing. Um, normally they'll come out with a decision and they don't even really tell the family before they come out with the decision, boom, like the family wakes up and one day all of a sudden the case is on the front page of the news again with a decision as to whether the prosecutor or not. And of course, in the vast majority of circumstances in California, district attorneys have been very reluctant to file criminal charges of police officers. So, you know, here we have a video. Okay, it's not nine minutes like George Floyd. It's three minutes. Well, three minutes is enough to kill someone. There was no reason to keep the pressure on Shane Sutherland's back, neck, and shoulder for that period of time when you have the knowledge that you could be causing him harm, including death. So we're hopeful that there'll be criminal charges uh, that are brought forth after that investigation is concluded. Uh, but we have no illusions that we have absolute expectations that it will. You know, we think it's the right thing for the district attorney to do, um, even if that delays our civil case. But if not, um, we as civil rights lawyers will continue to prosecute this case. Um, this is a case where we have a video, so that constitutes strong evidence. But we think there's more. You know, only one body cam video was produced. There's two officers. Where's the body cam of the officer who was putting that pressure on him? Where's the surveillance videos? You know that EMP, AMPM had videos that the police got. So where are those videos? So we could see the entirety of the scene instead of what's a skewed view. So we're hopeful that as the investigation progresses, we're gonna even have stronger evidence that what was uh, done to Shane Sutherland and causing his death was, was unlawful and excessive. And when it boils right down to an unreasonable use of force. Now we, uh, a few weeks ago, had the DA from San Joaquin County uh, on this show. Um, and, uh, you know, she's a little different than maybe some of the other DAs around the state. Um, they did file charges in a different case um, that's, uh, you know, going through the system. Um, obviously, she couldn't comment on, on this case because it's still under investigation by her office. Uh, I was also uh, in Martinez uh, earlier this week in Contra Costa County, um, where a jury uh, yesterday uh, convicted uh, a, um, a a cop, um, but not for the manslaughter. They got him for uh, assault with a weapon, um, but they, you know, they did convict him. Uh, so it, it seems like, you know, in the post. Uh, George Floyd era, we're moving a little bit, not as far as maybe some of us would like, but there is some movement here. Well, we hope you're right. <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, look at, at this point, of course, um, 
you know, we, we will have to wait for that ultimate decision before we are critical. You know, we're, hope, we're still hopeful. We're here to cooperate with them. So yes, I mean, let, yes. Thank you to the millions of people across the United States of America who came into the streets and exercised their First Amendment right to free speech, freedom of assembly, and spoke out on behalf of George Floyd and in favor of Black Lives Matter and against police brutality. It does make a difference. But still, as an observer and as a civil rights lawyer and as someone who got into those streets a little bit too, although I was working hard, we still don't have the George Floyd Accountability Act, you know, Justice in Policing Act passed in Congress. We have some really good bills signed by our governor here in California. But the crucial change that we wanted to Civil Code 52.1 to have, which is a state code that protects our civil rights, that unfortunately hasn't been interpreted very well by the California Court of Appeal. And we worked very hard through the National Police Accountability Project and the Consumer Association of California to write into the law, a law that would level the playing field and make it fair to bring on these cases of state of in the state of California, that was gutted from the bill. And so um, in, 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 in a budget committee, in a closed door session that we weren't privy to. And, you know, honestly, I put years of work into that change. It was very disappointing to see uh, that, be, that, that being taken away. So there's still challenges uh, for us in the, in the civil arena to prosecute these cases. But, um, and, and while we're gratified that there's been some change for the good, uh, there's still a lot more that needs to be done so that we have police agencies and police officers that really truly serve and protect um, instead of abusing the power that they are given um, and they use force in a way that ends up resulting in someone's death, which, as you mentioned, is just so tragic here, given the impact on the family and the community. And from your perspective, you know, what, what is kind of the most important way to hold the officers accountable? Is it criminally? Is it civilly? Is it, you know, get rid uh, of qualified immunity? Uh, you know, how, uh, what, where's the pressure point from your perspective? I think you need an across the board uh, change, but I do think that um, an increase in criminal prosecutions will serve as deterrence. So, I mean, I don't, I think you get ultimate justice through the criminal justice system. I mean, far too often, even if we win a civil case against an individual officer, nothing happens to that officer. You know, I, I had a case here in Los Angeles where we won a civil rights uh, verdict and the, there was constitutional violations and the jury found that the officer worked, it acted with actual malice when he injured our client, it wasn't a death case. Three weeks later, he was promoted to sergeant in, for LAPD. So, um, you know, it, it, I, I've had another case where they injured a disabled man and the officer comes in, oh, no, I, I'm not that rank anymore. I've been promoted to training officer. So you have individuals who are engaging in this type of excessive force, training other officers. Let's not forget Officer Chauvin, George Floyd. He's a training officer. He had a couple of new, really newly minted police officers. He's showing them this is the way we do business here in Minnesota. So criminal prosecutions takes them from outside of that civil arena and makes them the subject of criminal prosecution. So it's the most effective. 
qualified immunity is in civil law. And we've just had a couple of US Supreme Court cases that have really been damaging because they allowed what, what qualified immunity does, it takes folks' rights to a jury trial away from them. What happens is the judge decides that because there is no prior case that went to a court of appeal that's directly on point, that it says in, in the law, in writing, in black and white, in this factual circumstance, that this is wrong, then even if an officer does something blatantly risky that results in someone's death, the officer cannot be held accountable in civil court based on qualified immunity. A judge just writes the opinion. The family never gets to go to trial. They never get to bring the case to a jury. Now, remember, our, our Seventh Amendment to the United States Constitution has in it a right to a jury trial. Qualified immunity eviscerates that right, that right. It's a creature of Congress, it's a creature of the courts, and it should be abolished. And I think, again, that would enable lawyers like me to represent families like the Sutherland family and get justice in our civil courts. So absolutely, it should be abolished. And I think that you know the way the officers are trained, that they needs to be more of an emphasis on preserving human life not only their own, but the people they come into contact with. And that's sorely lacking in the training of police officers these days. So Karen, you know, as a mother, um, what does justice look like to you at this point? So there really is no such thing as justice. You know, the only kind of justice would be my son comes back and we know that that will never happen. Um, so a close, um, equal, I guess, to justice would be accountability. And, um, I'm going to kind of go off of what James just said too, and agree with him. My number one goal is, you know, that these officers are held accountable and, um, you know, my son didn't, did not deserve what they did to him that day. He did not deserve to die. I was a threat to no one. Um, I think their egos got in the way. Maybe they have some anger issues. I, I, I don't know. I, I can't think of any other um, explanation as to why they would treat somebody the way they treated my son. And I really feel that they need to be held accountable. I feel that the district attorney needs to do the right thing. Um, from what I've been told is that this is, I think since 2010, uh, I was told this, so I haven't you know, done complete research on it is something I was told that this is like the sixth uh, restraint asphyxiation um, in that county or in Stockton, I don't know. And none of the previous ones have been held accountable as far as the police officers being disciplined or fired. And it's time that changes are made. Um, it is time that they start being held to the same standard as us citizens are. Because if that was somebody else that was laying on my son and pressing their arm into his neck and ignoring his pleas that he couldn't breathe, they would already be sitting in jail awaiting a trial. And we know that. And I, I would like to know how the district attorney of San Joaquin feels about the verdict of Derek Siobhan. And I'm, I'm curious to that. Did she agree with that? Because if she does, well, there's our answer. You know, my son was killed in a similar matter. And um, 
they need to be held accountable, those officers, and so does the chief of police, because he allowed it and did not, those officers are still working. So, you know, my answer to that, as far as justice, um, I would like to see accountability. And my grandchildren uh, have no father now to support them. And, you know, and qualified immunity also needs to go away too. That's, that needs to end. And then I think the other end of this is, you know, because we've seen uh, too many of these cases really even post George Floyd. I mean, what, what is a better way for police to handle situations like this? And, it, you know, I, I had a friend for a long time that uh, did police oversight for a living. And he always said that, you know, police always have uh, this difficulty handling uh, the subject who is resisting, but not physically resisting. They're not cooperating the way that they'd like. And for some reason, those are the cases that cause them more problems than anything else. So how do you handle a situation like this? Well, it would have been very easy, let, let up. I mean, look, there's two officers. The handcuffs are on Shane. He's face down on the ground. He's telling them he's not going to move. The all, all if, if you felt that you needed to exert some pressure to make sure that he didn't stand up again, even though he's in handcuffs, and it's just, again, people in handcuffs don't feel like they have the opportunity to run away from police officers. I mean, you can't run as fast when you've got handcuffs behind your back. You know, if you start taking off at, at, at a sprint, it's pretty darn easy for that officer to get you down to the ground, right? Through a, you know, just, you could take someone's legs out from under him, but that would have never happened. All you needed to do once he was face down on the ground is roll him to the side. You can press a baton here, but this way there's no pressure on his diaphragm. So he's able to breathe sideways and then say, look, we're going to, we're going to sit you up and, you know, but you need to cooperate and talk to him and see if, if, you know, if, if, if he's going to, to cooperate. Shane was communicative that morning to those officers. He was, he was, you know, speaking to them in, in, in a calm voice in a way that was not threatening. So how do you deal with it? There are a myriad of ways that you could treat someone with respect and dignity but how, what you don't do is while they're handcuffed and prone flat on the ground, put pressure on their back or their neck because that's going to restrict their breathing and could end up killing them as happened here. And then Karen, you know, what, what do you want people out there to take away from, from this? What can they learn from this? You know, I hope people can open their minds a little more um, and stop automatically blaming the, the person other than the officer. Um, and just because somebody wears a badge or is an authority position does not make them right. Uh, again, Shane was of no threat. He was on his stomach with his hands cuffed behind his back. If they didn't want him to move, they could have just held his legs. He would still be here with us and we wouldn't even be having this conversation today. 
So I think that people need to be um, less judgmental um, because you know what, they, you never know when it's going to be you or somebody you love that is coming across this. There's, I, I have met so many families um, in this past year. Um, I've met families where their loved one uh, and one, one in particular, um, I won't mention the name because I haven't, you know, spoke and gotten it okay. But, you know, there was one in particular that was in a car accident and slid off the road and probably hit his head or whatever and was getting out of the car and was you know, was in mud. So he couldn't walk as fast, I guess, as officers wanted him to come. And they shot him several times and killed him. He wasn't committing a crime. He had no drugs in his system. He had nothing, but people automatically assume that, you know, they assume because my son, you know, was at the store calling 911. And then there's an allegation that he was threatening a store employee. You know, I, I don't know if that's true or not. I, I did talk to the store manager the very next day when I went to the scene and I asked him, you know, I said, you know, did my son threaten anybody? Like they said that, they, that he was, it, it just didn't seem like him. But again, you know, I don't know. I wasn't there. And the store manager told me, no, he wasn't threatening anybody. He was simply just shaking a wine bottle, just like you would shake some chocolate milk if you got it or something. He said he did not threaten anybody. So whether he did or didn't, I don't know. Um, but people run with the first thing that they hear from media or the police. And I really feel that people need to, you know, um, open their minds and, um, you know, look at the full picture before making that judgment. Well, I want to thank you both for taking the time to come on here and talking about this case. The one thing that I guess uh, I didn't bring up with a few guys um, that we didn't talk about is that, you know, part of what's going on here is that we've asked police officers to be the first responder when somebody is having a mental health crisis. And, you know, I unfortunately have had personal experience uh, with my son um, where you really don't have any other option other than you call the police if somebody's having a mental health crisis and you, uh, it's beyond your capacity to handle it. And the problem is, is that, you know, even when the police mean well, and, you know, fortunately with our son, they always came out and were uh, trying to be helpful. Um, you know, they just didn't have the skills to be able to handle an actual crisis situation. Their skill is put somebody in handcuffs, put them on the ground, get them to calm down that way, use force if necessary. And, you know, for a lot of people, that's not what they need. In fact, for a lot of people, that makes the situation worse because they're, they're responding out of trauma. Um, you know, I was just talking to an attorney earlier today, and this guy's trauma response was to, uh, uh, to basically become traumatized when he's talking to the cops. And so naturally, if the cops are giving him an order, he's, he's in fear already and, and not responding well. And so to the extent that we can uh, create alternative systems uh, to call a mental health professional, in an emergency rather than an armed uniformed police officer, I think we're gonna be in a lot better shape. Um, and you know, increasingly, I think uh, you know, communities 
and police too, you know, really are starting to recognize that, yeah, this, this isn't the best way to do it. Um, because, you know, cops are not trained or, or they're not, they're not experts certainly on mental health interventions. But anyway, that's my two cents. Yeah. No, absolutely, David. And, and, you know, it doesn't mean that police don't, would not play any role. I mean, in other words, you could have them back up, but if the first line of defense, so to speak, is someone who establishes a connection with that individual and speaks to them and find out what's going on with them that has caused this, this behavior, you're going to have a lot, a, a lot better results in terms of, especially in situations where people, um, you know, are trying to get family members uh, for help. I mean, we, you know, and, and you know, we got one case that you may be interested in that's coming up where, you know, a, a mom called, this was Visalia Police Department, and a mom called for help for her son, and you had one police officer on one arm, another on the other arm, and then the canine unit just allowed this dog to bite this kid's face. He was a, you know, a, a diagnosed uh, schizophrenic who wasn't violent, who just needed some medication compliance. And the mom reached out for help. And essentially, they, they, they tortured him. That should not be the response of police officers. Police agencies should be able to train their people to respond in better ways. But just because someone does not immediately comply with the police officer's commands, that should not result in the ultimate use of deadly force. And applying pressure to someone's neck when they're face down is a use of deadly force. So that really illustrates the, the issues. And if you have someone else who has some authority and some knowledge, they should be able to help the police officers or make sure that the police officers don't, don't engage in that type of conduct. You know, we heard that we hear that phrase, it takes a village, right? Well, why aren't we cross-training and 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 having teams respond to situations? Because it's not like this is economically efficient. You know, when we bring these cases on and the facts come out in trial municipalities end up having to pay out millions and millions of dollars to the families. Why not get it right the first time? Yeah, it just seems <laughs> like there is a better way to do things. And we've, we should have enough experience knowing how not to do things that we should be looking for a better way. Again, I wanna thank you guys for both coming on here, sharing your thoughts, our hearts go out, to you, Karen, and your family. Thank you. Um, all the things that you guys are, have gone through and unfortunately are going to continue to go through. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.